Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Christina A. Vogt and Michael E. Marchand to discuss their book, The Medicine Wheel, Environmental Decision-Making Process of Indigenous Peoples. Thanks for tuning in. The Medicine Wheel, built by Indigenous people, acknowledges that ecosystems experience unpredictable recurring cycles and that people and the environment are interconnected. The Western science knowledge framework is incomplete when localized intergenerational knowledge is not respected and becomes a part of the problem definition and solution process. If both forms of knowing continue on separate parallel tracks, the decision process will most likely identify the symptom of an environmental problem and not the disease causing it. The goal of this book is to lay the context for how to connect Western science and indigenous knowledge frameworks to form a holistic and ethical decision process for the environment. A collection of essays, interviews, stories, and research, the Medicine Wheel does not just describe the problems inherent to each knowledge framework, but offers new insights for how to connect culture and art to science knowledge frameworks. In the words of Doug Decker, The Medicine Wheel is a volume you'll want to consult time and again and to share with your peers. I'm thrilled to welcome two of the nine authors of The Medicine Wheel, Drs. Mike E. Marchand and Christina A. Vogt, to the show to discuss the book. Mike is a former chair and council member of the Confederated Tribes of the Colville, president of the Affiliated Tribes of Northwest Indians Economic Development Corporation, and he earned his Ph.D. at the University of Washington, Seattle. Christina A. Vogt is Professor of Ecosystem Management and Holistic Assessment of Ecosystems at the University of Washington, Seattle. Mike, Christina, thank you both so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting us and having this session. There's a lot to cover with your book, so I'd like to get right into it. And I'm really curious to know how the two of you came to collaborate with the other folks who produced this book and what your hopes were for the project. I think I might start off on answering that because I was the chair of Mike's committee, and I've also been the chair of at least about six tribal people. Mike is a leader, so normally you don't just go in and interact with Mike. So like if you went to the Confederate tribe, you would have to set up an appointment, right, Mike? And it could take months to even get in to see him because he is really like the president. But one of the things that happened and became really something that I noticed is that, so it goes back, I think, about 10 years, maybe a little bit less. When Mike showed up, we had, I can't remember, Mike, if we had like about four tribal people, five tribal people that were in the program that you came into. And it was a program between the College of Forest Resources at the time, and also the College of Engineering. And it was a, a National Science Foundation funded program. And when Mike came in, Mike had just decided that he was going to work on his PhD degree. And he was already older, right, Mike? And But it was just something where, which is a characteristics of tribal people, they're really interested in things. They're not just into their narrow little focus area. But when Mike went in, he took the graduate entrance exams, and Mike peaked at like 98%. Nobody does that. And everybody just kind of looked at it like, whoa, what's with this guy? 
But what it did is that the engineering students and even the faculty early on really didn't have a lot of respect for the people that were in the college that I was in because they sort of looked at it like, oh, it's too practical. It's not scientific enough. It's not rigorous enough. And I was really surprised. They didn't treat some of the tribal people very well at all and didn't have any respect for them. But the one thing I noticed is that when Mike showed up, all of a sudden Mike was in fact having it where the students, the PhD students, were even quoting him. And I thought like, whoa, this is really different because I had noticed through time is that there really isn't always a lot of respect for the way Native people form knowledge, even though that is really the future. And so it really started highlighting this fact that when you're in an academic institution, they really kind of downplay, even in those situations, how Native people form knowledge and what do they do. And Mike stood out. And he stood out because he all of a sudden, they didn't know what to do with him because nobody even in their program was getting 98% on their GREs. And so it really shocked them. And some of the things that I've been involved with are, is really an ecosystem ecology. And so you're looking at all of the environments as an ecosystem that includes people. And uh, I had a lot of experience. I used to teach at Yale. And one of the things we did, we were in Brazil, we were in Indonesia, we were in Iceland, but you really started learning about the local knowledge held by the people and how these were really the people should be involved in making decisions for the environment. And that just hasn't happened. And because of this, our concern has been, and I think we all had that concern, is that we're not using the local, we're not using the native knowledge or thinking about the process that they use to form knowledge about environment. And so our problems are persisting. And so the former dean from Yale always says, this John Gordon, he's one of the people that contributed to it, that our problems persist for decades. We don't solve them. And it's because we're not really including everything that we should in these. And so we started having meetings among the group and just talking about these. And it's from these discussions that really the book emerged uh, and a lot of other things are still going on. So I don't know, Mike, if you want to make any comment about your experience with the academic side and how you felt about it. Well, sure. I've had a real diverse upbringing, I guess. And when I was really young, I was raised fairly uh, traditionally. My mother was a Wenatchee tribal member. My my dad was a tribe called the Sanaikis people, actually partly lived in Canada. So I was raised fairly traditionally, hunting, fishing, and those sorts of things. But then um, I went I went into a real diverse phase of my life where I, where I was sent to prep school on the East Coast. And I experienced places like uh, Exeter or Dartmouth or MIT, you know, the latest technology was coming out of New England in those days. And so I was exposed to the you know, latest stuff, computers, uh, machine languages, uh, computer chips, kind of before they became public and the technology was interesting. But also they had um, really good programs like in ancient uh, history, like Greeks and European history. So I, got, I, got, I was lucky I got exposed to a lot of wide, diverse things as a child, from, from traditional Native things to the latest that the Western world uh, was going through. And I also got to meet diverse cultures of people from all over the world and some very rich, wealthy people, powerful people. And, and so, so when you when you grow up in that kind of environment, you really don't get intimidated by anybody because you're, 
I'm comfortable here on the reservation where people are very poor. I'm just as comfortable in Washington, D.C., you know, talking to a senator. You know, to me, people are people. But that comes from how I was raised, I think. And, and so I had adults who were kind of crafting my life for me. I really had no idea where I was going, but people kind of kind of groomed me to, to be who I am. So I'm thankful for that. How did you, Mike, decide to uh, pursue the Ph.D. later in life? Well, it was, uh, it was one of my mother's wishes, and I think I, in her eyes, I don't know if it's true, but, but and the way I saw it was she, she thought I was kind of an underperformer, and I would, I would go to school to learn certain things to apply it on a job. And so, so I went and got a master's degree in planning, which is kind of an interdisciplinary thing, and then, then I went to law school, and after the first year of law school, to me, and in, in my in my brain, I was thinking, this is getting very repetitive, and I could see where it was going. I really lost interest in that, and but I'm thankful I learned enough about law to, to where I could apply it to things I wanted to do. So after second year law, I, I left and went to work in professions I wanted to. I was interested in business development and organizations, different things like that. But to my mom's point of view, I failed. I wasn't a lawyer, and and um, to me, I was doing okay, but this kind of make her happy. <laughs> I had an opportunity. Actually, I lost the election after about 20 years of being a leader. I lost the election, and so it was almost an accident. I had the opportunity to go and get a doctorate, and there was uh, the fellowship was set up, and it looked like an interesting program. So I thought, well, this, the stars lined up. I have a chance to go to the university and, and get a PhD, and I can uh, go learn some more stuff. And uh, make my mom happy, even though she's uh, passed away now. I still think she's uh, kind of in my heart. Yet, you know, so it's kind of for my mom, kind of for me, too, so it worked out. And did the work that you pursued in the PhD, is it is it similar to the sort of environmental management uh, ecosystems work that is occurring in the book? Well, it's probably different planes or levels we're talking about. Uh, like in my life experience, I've worked a lot with... Uh, development, uh, new things, uh, new governmental systems, and new business development, and kind of, so we kind of were involved with kind of re redesigning structures, uh, how that all works, and uh, so, we're, so we work with, uh, you know, business people of all sorts, uh, finance people, and also with cultural people, because they said they had to work in a native environment, and so, so I was used to working with the interdisciplinary groups, and so like the engineers might say something and go to a community meeting or well, the people in normal community, they don't speak, engineers speak. And so often I was like an interpreter. So the engineer is trying to say this and translating to what normal people would say or scientists. And uh, that's the type of planning I liked. It was kind of like an information interchange and that's kind of what I gravitated to. And so I just loved the interdisciplinary part of it. So I know just enough about everything to be very dangerous. <laughs> and then, uh, so I noticed that the university settings, uh, you know, most most typical universities and, and even prep school, they were pretty siloed, you know. And so anthropologists are all about their field and go across the street. And a computer programmer knows about his stuff, you know. And you can go every every building on campus. And and uh, I noticed that. Uh, like where our forestry department is at the University of Washington, it's right by the Husky football stadium, which is probably really why I went there. But uh, <laughs> don't tell them that. <laughs> well, right across the street, there are people say doing the latest uh, Microsoft computer work. These people go to work every day, and they don't even know who works across the street. That's really typical university stuff. 
And so this iGrid program is talking about, okay, let's put engineers in the room and uh, let's put some uh, ecology type people in the room and foresters and all this stuff and let's see what happens. And that's kind of what it was about. And really that's kind of like how my life had been going anyway. That's kind of where, what I specialized in was these interdisciplinary groups. And so it was really right up my alley. And and plus, uh, you know, most college people, I won't say all, I'm generalizing, but they know a lot about the books and you know, the academic side of things, but but most of them haven't don't have a lot of practical experience. You know, like like I built big buildings, I built big businesses, I I've designed legal systems, or you know, the whole whole community and we're building nations. And so we had a lot of professors who've kind of studied that, you know, but uh, but I've actually had hands-on stuff doing that kind of thing. And so so I felt like I could contribute and. So it wasn't a one-way street, and, uh, and it, it worked out pretty well, I think. Most professors were just happy to talk to someone who's older than 18 years old, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and they liked... It's a little real-life experience. Yeah, and they liked to talk about... They liked to bounce stuff that, at me, too. They'd say, like, the book says this, but you've actually built one. What do you think? You know? So it was, it was fun back and forth. This brings up a, a pretty important point, he said, because you've heard Mike talk about science but he's also talking about history he's knowledgeable about a lot of things and in fact that's one of the points that we're trying to get across in the book is that the decision makers for the environment the voices of the, for the environment should really be the local people it should be the communities that are being directly impacted and part of the problems that we've had now is that we've got people in academic institutions who are very disciplinary trained just like what mike said and they have a lot of knowledge about certain things, and that knowledge needs to be part of it. But when you're making decisions for the environment, we've got to get the local communities. We've got to get sort of the way they make decisions has to become part of the process, and we don't do that. And so one of the things that we've all been talking about is that the environmental decision-making has to become part of the popular culture. If it's not part of the popular culture, then we've got a problem. And one of the things that Mike just talked to you also about, and the former dean from Yale, John Gordon, always talked about leadership, environmental leadership. And they've been trying to figure out how do we get it where problems don't persist. And so some of the characteristics that you heard Mike talk about is what we need. We don't need specialists because you're going to always package it based on what you know, right? And if it's a very narrow field and only maybe five people know about it, that's what you're going to talk about, and you're going to package everything in that. And so one of the things that we think that they should, in fact, be another book that comes out, and we're sort of talking a little bit about it, but it really does get back into how do you get the leadership in there. And so Mike is a leader. He's been a leader for years. And so what you're seeing is he's making environmental decisions, but he's also having to make other decisions that are not related necessarily to the environment. But that's what we need. We need to get people that are really more like in the olden days used to call the Renaissance man, right? You know, had knowledge about a lot of different areas so that you're not just packaging all the problems and you don't form your knowledge of it from a very narrow perspective. And so this is really crucial if we're going to really start changing fundamentally how we make decisions. And that's why getting it where people start learning how the tribes make decisions is crucial. Because that's how we're going to really have an impact and do something for the environment. If without it, we're not going to. And a lot of people like Mike, he's not going to tell you like, oh, I did this or I did that. You know, he's not going to talk about 
all the things that he's done because that's sort of, I think, a tribal people's approach. And it's not just getting the, the facts. It's not just saying, I can tell you that this thing is linked to this and to this. But in fact, what he's doing is he's forming what I call wisdom out of the knowledge or the information that we have. And that's crucial. You kind of have a clash of two different you know, worldviews when Columbus or Vikings or pick your explorer, you know, but, but Europe had a real hierarchical system that had developed over thousands of years. And you could, you could almost pick anything in Europe, uh, uh, save the Catholic Church. There was never rigid pyramid, the popes on the top, uh, cardinals, bishops, down to the masses, right? And pretty much the same system on, on the on um, non-religious world also. We had kings, barons, on down to the bottom. And, and people were used to taking you know, orders from the top, and they're barely surviving on the bottom. And that's kind of the system that, that evolved. Native Americans are a very different system. And the Native Americans, uh, there's kind of an understanding that the individual person is the sovereign entity. And there's a sense of community. And there's also a different sense of time also. And so, so my people have been here for thousands and thousands of years. And so it's not like we can, we can spoil this, this mountain I live on because hopefully my grandchildren will see it. Hopefully their grandchildren will see it. So there's a different sense of time also. And so there, again, there's, there's different values at play. Most meetings you go into, you say, go to New York or any city. There's kind of a hierarchy there. If it's a business world, you know, there's certain people respecting business world. Or, or if you go in the academic world, you know, they've got their hierarchies too. You know, we've got deans or, you know, certain people respected for things they've done and, and so forth. Anyway, tribal people are, I think, more, do have a stronger network. Just for an example, in a little village, uh, decisions are kind of communal, but that's easy if small. But we also had regional meetings also. And, and we've had those for thousands of years, and, and we kind of worked together as a network, even with no technology, we did that. And so there, we have meetings of all the Northwest tribes like three times a year. That's been going on for thousands of years. And so to me, the exciting part of all this is that the technology is getting so good now that, that there's a, I think there's a, a merger taking place between the old world European thought, which you could call American thought now, and some of these native systems. And, and so the communication makes it possible. I can talk to someone on any continent today, snap on the fingers, right? And so, so the tools are in place. Also, also the audiovisual world, that's very native. You know, we, we like to see things, touch things, uh, hear things. And uh, for hundreds of years, you know, we're, we're kind of stuck with memos and written stuff. So, so I think there's kind of an emerging taking place whether we like it or not, between native systems and old world systems. And you can just kind of see it happening, you know. It might not happen in my lifetime, but I can see it. While we were talking about both of these sets of ideas, the technology and the groups of people, I'm thinking about the book itself, which is which is not your traditional academic monograph. You know, I said at the outset that there's nine authors all sort of working in collaboration the book is not a straightforward sort of narrative um, recounting of research, but it includes interviews and personal stories. It's richly illustrated with you know, photographs, not just of the authors, but of also the topics. Could you say a little bit about working together to come up with the form of the book? Why did you want it to look that way? And, and what kind of work were you hoping it would do as a textbook? One of the things that I think is important is that 
Native people have oral traditions. Uh, and right now, when you look at people on the outside that are writing books on tribes, you notice it's a lot of it's art. You know, they, they're all emphasizing certain things because they've been making a lot of money. They're on the antique road shows. You know, they're selling things that the Native people have made. But they don't really talk about the fact that they have a lot of knowledge in other areas. But as part of the oral traditions, one of the things that we found out pretty early is that, and I, there's one example, we were having a meeting, or we were in fact uh, interviewing Kalamukamoto. And we were talking about businesses because he in fact had worked for a tribe and he had been running the business side, in fact, for several tribes. And even though his background is Japanese. And, but one of the things that happened then is we're talking to Cal and then all of a sudden Mike pops in at, at the university and they started interacting and talking. And one of the things that came up is that a lot of times students learn this idea, oh, go and interview somebody. But you don't get much out of that because people hear you ask a question and they will give you an answer for that. And all of a sudden, Cal and Mike were interacting and the ideas and the things that came out made it so robust. It just made it where all of a sudden you could start imagining things. And it was just a simple thing like, I don't know if you remember, Mike, but you guys were talking about cars. And the idea was is that if you're a tribal person, you're not going to drive a big, fancy car. You're not like what in the olden days. When I came from Finland, one of the things that I remember first coming to the States, it was a lot of discussion about the nouveau riche. And these were people that really had made a lot of money, but they weren't cultured, right? But one of the things you had is that for a tribal person, you're not going to go around and drive a very expensive car, even though Mike's had all kinds of cars. He's had, what, Hummers and <laughs> sports cars, you name it, motorcycles. But the thing that came out was is that you don't go around and you don't try to uh, show your wealth. You don't try to advertise it. You don't have this sort of artificial thing like the wealth, wearing a lot of jewelry or other things. That's not really what makes you. That's just sort of that superficial cover. And these guys were talking about the cars and talking about how people in some of the tribes that have done really well, uh, they still drive a ratty looking car, right, Mike? Well, it's different value systems than the say just generalizing you know money kind of buys you some worth in america you get money power some status maybe not with everybody but with quite a few people uh for for a traditional tribal village it's not so much true i mean we don't dislike money but but probably the people that are respected most in a small tribal setting is are people that are generous people that help each other uh, even some of our traditions are called giveaways uh, you share things, uh, and so the piece, the people that give away the most and help out their neighbors the most, they're the most respected people. And uh, it's not so much uh, whether you have a billion dollars or not, but uh, it's who's in your face on a daily basis, who's in contact with you, are they good or bad people? But uh, most of the world's not like that, you know. Like, like I could show up to a meeting in some Hilton somewhere, they all look the same, right? And, if I wear my shabby old reds clothes, they'll think I'm a hobo and call security, right? But if I wear a nice suit and act like I've got a PhD, I get treated differently, right? And so it's just a value system and what people are kind of used to. And, and I think if you're a tribal leader or maybe any kind of leader, you need 
you need to be able to assess what's going on in this community and what kind of meeting it is. I heard stories that some tribal leaders actually keep different sets of clothes in their car. I don't do that, but they'll, they'll either dress up or dress down, trying not trying to respect the people they're talking to, right? <laughs> and even language and the words you use uh, goes on and on. And I, and I think all of that sort of applies to the form of the book, right? I'm, I'm here, you're, you're sort of enacting the, the thing that happens in the book, which is that you, you have these encounters between people, like the kind that Christine is describing about the, the car discussion. You have ways of presenting yourself to different groups, those kinds of things. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the medicine wheel from the book's title. It's sort of a central metaphor for the work that you're doing in the book. Could you tell me about the medicine wheel? What is it, and how did you adapt that concept um, in your effort to unite Indigenous and Western ways of knowing? Well, it's kind of a concept spinning around in my head for a long time. It's like uh, we we kind of we kind of see the interrelationships between things and uh, some of the traditional stories. Well, they'll refer to the earth as a hoop. Uh, circles are common, uh, common in native cultures. That a lot of the old traditional homes were circular, and, and a lot of the stories were circular. And we could just watch with our own eyes and ears that a lot of things are circular and things kind of come and go. As I got older, I started noticing things like the medicine wheel and the my parents like to travel, and they're, they're like the Chevy Chase jump in a station wagon and go. And so I'd see things like medicine wheels, and I'd think, what is that, you know? Because we don't have any on the Culver Reservation that, well, I take that back. I think we do have a couple of smaller ones. But the first one I noticed was in Wyoming, which we kind of, I wrote about. And it was just uh, really striking. It was just uh, the more you learn about it, the more you learn about the thoughts went behind it. It's kind of like a kind of like Stonehenge in England, the medicine wheel or something like that. And there's a lot of sim- symbolism involved with it. But also this where it's located is important. And um, you just got like a layer after layer of, of thinking about it. And so so you could compare it to like a mother goose story. You know, when a kindergarten kid hears about it, they'll hear one thing. But if an older person looks at the same story, they'll see that, well, it has concepts that come from that culture that time period and you know you can different ways to look at it. And medicine wheel same thing and so it's it's a location it's on top of the one i'm talking about the one i wrote about is on top of the uh, bighorn mountains in, in wyoming and it's right on the edge of the great plains so it just kind of juts up right out of the plains and it's it's imposing and so you have uh, thousands of miles of great plains where it's relatively flat and the then you have these mountains sticking up, and it's, it's almost like they stick up into the sky, and they do. And you, and you go up there, the view is amazing. And then, uh, then that structure is amazing, too, because it's uh, ancient. It's old. You can just tell it's been there a long time, and uh, you can walk around there. And, and you also see uh, visitors that come there. There's different types of visitors that come there, but different tribes have different customs. And some tribal people go up there, and they'll leave little... Um, maybe even coins or jewelry or ribbons or there's things from all over North America, maybe even different countries, but they'll leave little tokens, gifts there. And, and, you know, some of them have been bleached in the sun. They've been here a long time. And it's just interesting. And then the, then the, the, the pattern itself, it's a big circular pattern of stones. And then it has spokes like a, kind of like a wagon wheel, but they're kind of spiral shaped. And there's 28 spokes. So 28 was kind of a sacred number, and that's lunar month, that's lunar calendar. 
It's also um, females, uh, menstrual cycles, 28 days. And, and so the whole the whole mountain is something like that. And I could tell you more, but some of it's like top secret. I can't tell you. But, oh. <laughs> but also uh, uh, one of the common customs is that um, young children are sent in the mountains to, to kind of contemplate the world and meditate. And it's called vision quests. And they're kind of prepared for that, but maybe when they're 10 or 12 years old, they're, they're sent up there to this kind of more or less dumped off and left for a few days. And some will get uh, dreams or visions, some don't. But uh, it's just common, common North American practice. And it's just interesting for all those reasons. So it's crossroads of people. Native Americans traveled a lot from one coast to the other. Uh, people kind of think they're static, but they weren't. They were traders, they were businessmen. And so a lot of them would, it's kind of like today, you know, if, if they were heading to the East Coast, they'd say, well, we're going there anyway. Let's swing by the medicine wheel. We, we heard about it. We'll go see it. And so it was crossroads from that standpoint. I think it was crossroads from thinking this kind of philosophy, too, where you have, we have human activities on the planet surface, but then you also have, uh, you know, the galaxy and universe, stars, uh, when you're on top of the Bighorn Mountains, you, you get a very good view of the sky at nighttime. The stars are bright. You know, there's no cities pretty much for hundreds of thousands of miles almost. So, so you'll see the sky like you've never seen it before. And all those sorts of things are going on. And then because of the altitude, it's also at the, at the mercy of storms and weather and winds and all, all the furies that the planet has to offer. They're, they're all going on right up there. And I wrote a little bit about that. But, uh, so I just thought that was an interesting symbol, um, kind of a place where you can think about things. And I stop by there every four or five years, and I have different thoughts about each time. It's just that sort of thing. And, and there are actually different medicine wheels in the country. Uh, like I mentioned, there are some here in Washington State. Uh, they're, they're probably in every state, probably. But most of them are not so imposing as that one. Also, uh, I'll, just, I'll just close with this little story. Uh, in my life, I was given a name of wolverine because of an encounter i had with a wolverine and you know and i'm i've been schooled in western science and everything and, and yeah i know wolverine what a wolverine is but uh but in my imagination he was talking to me and maybe he was maybe he wasn't i can't prove it but uh he more or less my understanding was he told me to move right here and i did i moved my house to where i saw that wolverine and, and uh, then this is years later when i moved up here when i became an adult I was talking with an old aunt, and I told her about this encounter one day. I really hadn't thought that much about it as far as was this a big event in my life. She listened to it very intently, and I could tell right away it was important to her. And she said, um, she said what happened to you was a, a spiritual encounter. And she said, that should be your name. And so she named me Wolverine. And uh, in my language, that's called Femine as a word. In my tribe, but you go 100 miles north, you say Quistamine. There's there's different dialects, but it means Wolverine. And uh, so Wolverine's a, a very small, relatively small animal, but it's really it's really a, a fighter. It's an animal that likes to fight and doesn't back down. It, it's kind of almost mean. <laughs> they'll fight grizzly bears. Uh, they'll fight anything. <laughs> and and my aunt kind of thought that was funny. She said, "Yeah, kind of, just kind of, just like you, Mike Wolverine. <laughs> you never know when you're defeated." You know. <laughs> anyway, at the end of my story is that uh, we're me and my wife are up to just gawking around like tourists, you know, with our camera, and uh, we're just fascinated like everybody else up there. And uh, 
guess what appears? Uh, Wolverine appears in them. And they're a pretty rare animal to see, at least in the United States. And, uh, and so it's like, a, what's the chances of running into a Wolverine on that day? It's probably one in a million, you know. And so you just wonder about things like that. How do you explain that? You know, I can't explain it. <laughs> Kurt, what this brings up and what Mike is bringing up is the importance of the fact that they're looking at their environment. They know their environment. They have a history from uh, elders, people that they've heard stories, and this all becomes part of it. And I think that a lot of the problems that we have with the environment today is that people are too distant or what they see is very artificial because they just sort of hike through it, but they don't really see the animals. They don't really see what's there. And for the tribes, they really have a very strong link. So they have the culture and they have spiritual aspects, which, you know, always at academic institutions, say, oh, you can't have that. Well, that is part of you and it's how you make decisions. But I think that it tells you that they are connected to nature, the environment, they see the environment. And that's what we're talking about is that we've got to get it where the current decision makers really get out there. They're not just looking at it as sort of an artificial construct. You know, it's not like going to the zoo to learn to know animals because you don't, you know, they're not even in their environment. They're not even behaving the same way. And part of that knowledge that they have is why, and a good example is really with the uh, Aborigines. And the Aborigines, in fact, recognize they're looking at the plants, they're looking at the animals. They know that the environment's changing. And so they, in fact, are managing knowing that the climate is changing. And that's just uh, pretty amazing. Because what do we do? We just sort of respond to a symptom. Then we say, oh, we're going to try to control this. But that's not going to work. You know, it's a symptom. And so you're not really addressing what's causing the problem. And so what they would do is that, yes, they hunted uh, kangaroo. They eat them. But what they would do is they would burn. So they knew that the climate was changing. It was going to get drier. And they would know this a couple of years before it would happen. And they would go in and they would burn some areas. And they made sure that there was green grass or food needed by the kangaroos so that they would, in fact, survive. I've never heard of a society, a group of people, that managed for climate change, knowing that it was coming up, and did something about it. And this is what we need to do. But this means you've got to have this knowledge of sort of the past. You, you can't just... You can't just rely on scientists. Scientists are part of it, but they're not the ultimate solution. In fact, scientists will tell you, we can't make the decision for you. We're just giving you some of the facts that you need to use. And right now, we're kind of ignoring that science is even being ignored by politicians when all of a sudden they decide, oh, we don't need to know this, or because we want certain decisions. And in fact, what the indigenous people introduce is they have a process for getting it where it becomes part of the popular culture. Everybody should be involved in making decisions on the environment, not just the decision makers, who a lot of times have no background, don't really understand it, and they're trying to figure out how to do that. So I think it's that tribes have a lot to teach the rest of society. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Christina A. Vogt and Michael E. Marshand to discuss their book, The Medicine Wheel, Environmental Decision-Making Process of Indigenous People. Christina, I'd like to follow up on that because my next question sort of we've talked a little bit around um, some of the characteristics of indigenous knowledge about the environment. One of the things that I think is really characterizes the book is that y'all are trying to find a way to unite different ways of thinking about the world. We tend, you know, as a as a white person, I tend to encounter 
these things presented as in conflict, like the European epistemology is different and conflicts with native epistemologies. How do you see them working together uh, to address the problems that you're assessing? Some of it gets back into the fact that the uh, Western science is, is, uh, tends to be disciplinary and focused, but there's a lot of people, and I get them in my class at the University of Washington, they don't want to just have this sort of narrow focus. They want to be able to look at all of the connections. And one of the things that we have is tribes have storytelling. And right now there's the information school at the University of Washington, where one of our collaborators, Phil Fawcett, that was in, also in the book, uh, what they do is they teach information management. And how do they do that? They do that through storytelling. But this is a subset of a group of the people. And so the storytelling idea is really important. And we're, in fact, looking at that as a, as a way you get people with very different backgrounds. So instead of just having it where you fight over environmental issues and everybody gets into their camp, when you use storytelling, and that's what tribes do really effectively, you bring consensus, you're bringing people together, and all of a sudden you're not just fighting one another. And it's through these stories, and Mike can talk a little bit about it, but the stories aren't just, it's not like Hansel and Gretel or something else. You know, all that teaches our kids how to be afraid of forest at nighttime, and they even have a term for it, which is interesting. But what we have is that you're learning how to get people to understand and get a balance. Tribes are all about balance. So Nancy, one of the co-authors here for Navajo, talks about balance. That's something that they bring up that's really important. It's not having it where you get extremes with one person or the other. So storytelling, and not right now, in fact, I'm going to be teaching storytelling, but then converting them into games. And one of the things that we want to do is that people, though the educational system doesn't teach people to critically look at the issues and recognize who all should be brought in, uh, what are the issues, who are the stakeholders. It sort of tends to focus in a very narrow way. And through the storyboards, and then also making games, and we're trying to see if we can get money to, in fact, start producing games for K-12. through And then we also think for uh, legislative staffers, because when I was at Yale, we'd get all these staffers coming in, and they came to get a degree because they got really nervous that, hey, I know that there's a lot more things out there, but they didn't have a process for figuring out how to, in fact, tell a story about a problem. And they were very worried the laws were being made and uh, it was going to fail because it really wasn't being done in the right way. And so there are things that the tribes do and they tribes, they don't say, oh, it's just like, oh, it's just a tribal method. And Mike's talked about this. And I think you even brought that up in the, in the book, but it's, they need the Western science. So there's the knowledge because we have such an altered environment. Things have changed. You know, our environments are fragmented. You also have to have it where you got to think about what are your values? What is your culture? How do you bring that in? Because that really impacts how you make decisions. But it's not like you can just say, oh, well, just have this value, this value, and so on. Like in Finland, we have Sisu. Sisu is just that guts and tenacity of purpose and stubbornness. That's a character. But you can't, you don't learn Sisu by just going to school, right? But through the storytelling, you can, in fact, start learning how to make those interconnections because that's what they're doing. And it's the interconnections from the past, and they're looking at over larger landscapes. 
Mike's talked about how, in fact, they didn't manage the land. Sometimes they would manage a piece of land and they might not go back to it for two years. But when the Europeans, Western Europeans came in and is still kind of maintaining that, they would say, oh, it's wilderness because there's nobody here. It wasn't wilderness. It was managed lands, but the way they did it. I don't know, Mike, if you can even talk about that a little bit. So these are the kinds of things that people need to add to the things that they have. And so they're not incompatible. It's just that you might emphasize certain of the tools or the way you, in fact, do that. I think one difference is we, we respect diversity and, you know, we don't try to convert anyone into say our village, our village beliefs. Uh, you're over there 10 miles away. You got your own village to do things your way. We don't, we don't really care. We respect what you want to do, but, but, uh, but general culture in the world, you know, Europeans and Americans are not like that. You know, we, they sent missionaries over here. Why? To convert us from traditional religions to Catholic religion at the time. Then we were told that our, our traditional religions were bad for us because we had ceremonies that say lasted seven days or say pick some long number and, and we we'd go into these traditional ceremonies and the Europeans or the Americans would tell us, Well, how are you gonna work in an industrial society if you're doing all this religious stuff? You need to be free five days a week or whatever to do your job and go to work. And we were taught that for a couple hundred years and uh, and so we kind of changed some of our practices. We, we, we changed our seven-day ceremonies, done three days or sometimes two days or sometimes one day. Or, and not everyone changed everything. Some, some still keep the traditional things going, but some have adapted. And then I was thinking, well, that's kind of the way it is. Uh, the Americans have this idea that we're doing bad things. But then I got a chance to go to Austria one time. I was working for a university, and I went to Austria for a conference. And, and uh, I probably learned everything that they weren't intending me to learn. But, but one of the things I noticed was that the week I went to Austria, I swear, like every day of the week was a religious holiday. And there were bells ringing. They shut everything down. <laughs> and I thought it was hilarious because, because they were telling us, you guys can't be religious. At, you can't be industrial and be religious, you know. But, but Austria is a pretty industrialized country, right? And the... Over time, I'm sure it's taken thousands of years, but they seem to have it figured out how they can be a staunch Catholics and still produce a lot of billions of dollars in industrialized goods. They, and so they've adapted that for them. But when they come and talk to us, they tell us, oh no, your Indian stuff is just bad. You gotta throw it out the window and become something else. Well, well I, think, I think probably the Austrians had the right idea. You, you need to adapt the world to whatever your beliefs are. And, and they've done that. Uh, maybe too well, like when Hitler was in charge. But I think the same thing's true over here. There's a disconnect between everything here. And I live in eastern Washington. We got the biggest biggest project in the world is right here. It's called the Columbia Basin Project. Grand Coulee Dam was built here, one of the biggest dams in the world. And it wasn't really built for electricity, although it does do that. It was built for irrigation. And so it pumps water hundreds of miles to the south. It irrigates uh, desert land and the rich farmland. And, but the interesting, interesting thing to me is that the people within, within this remote area, they're disconnected from each other. And so I can travel 100 miles from my house south into the Columbia Basin Project, and there will be rural farm towns where they're irrigating alfalfa and they're raising cows and different crops going on. And, you know, they're hardworking farmers, you know, they're types that uh, 
that Willie Nelson would be saving with his uh, Fire Maid concerts, right? And just salted the earth people. And they work hard. I respect them. Uh, but if I talk to him and tell him, well, do you know that uh, your farm here, the water that you use, totally destroyed the Columbia River? They killed off salmon. They destroyed lives for thousands of Native American people. It used to be fishermen. In 1940, we were fishermen one day, 100% employed. After the dam dammed up all the water, we we're 100% unemployed. You now I can read the accounts of why you guys are failures as natives because you guys are just backwards. Well, to me, you know, we're not failures because we're backwards. We're failures because you dammed up the Columbia River and you killed all the fish. That's why we're failures. You know, you know to me, there's concrete reasons for that. But the, but the people in the, that benefit from the Columbia Basin, it's farmers. Where's the electricity goes? The electricity mainly goes to Seattle, right? And Seattle produces Boeing, they got Microsoft, they've got all these high-tech industries that benefit from uh, Grand Coulee Dam. Uh, when the dam was built, there weren't even any people yet. And so they say, send all the electricity to the Tri-Cities. 1940s, what was going on, World War II, uh, they needed this electricity to develop the atomic bomb. And so Grand Coulee Dam killed all the fish with the Indians. We were starving to death, we were unemployed. But all that power went to Tri-Cities, uh, Richmond, Pasco, uh, Kennewick, and they were developing the atomic bomb. Uh, you know, the, of course, you know what happened to that. It was dropped on, two bombs were dropped on uh, Japan, right, in World War II. But, but you can trace that all the way back, atomic bombs, uh, uh, Seattle high-tech industries of today, you can trace it all back to 1940 when Grand Coulee Dam was built. So there's interconnectedness there. But there's also interconnectedness on the, ne on the negative side, too. And to me, today, you know, it creates unemployment. It's a big barrier. It's like a big giant moat we can't get across. We can't develop the lands we have. We can't connect them to markets. And so there's, there's pluses and there's minuses. And, and we just, uh, you know, we, we don't think the dam's going to disappear, but we think we can probably mitigate it. And so we are. We're figuring out ways to get salmon back up the river. We're... We're still wrestling with economic problems. We still have uh, high unemployment and things, but we're making headway. So that's the only point is that I could talk to the farmers down there. They benefit, but they don't know what they impacted. I can go to Seattle. You know, there's a fancy restaurants there where they're eating sushi or whatever, and the, and they don't realize the impact of our people. And, and but that can all change. You know, I think which I think it's gradually starting to. You know, so I see young people today becoming more aware about it and they're going to, like a lot of young people uh, went to Standing Rock a few years ago, protesting the pipeline. Uh, a lot of young people from all over the world went to Switzerland for climate change things going on in Geneva. So it's kind of, I think there's some good trends starting up. I don't know where it's going to end up, but I think technology makes a lot of that possible too. So a lot of people that uh, have never been on a reservation Find you a few Native American friends that plug into Facebook. You know all about what's going on here more than me. <laughs> I wonder if we could follow that a little further and maybe abstract it a little uh, in, in service of thinking about the book. One of Christina has mentioned this before, how, how the book is really pointing to the importance of talking to the local people, like people who are involved, like what happens when you dam up the river to the people who depend upon it for survival. What are some strategies that 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 you can think of or that you use or that the book explores 
for making sure that those kinds of things do involve the local communities and the and the people who will be most affected by changes like you know damming up the Columbia River? One of the things that we're working on are what I mentioned was the storyboards and games and so on. In the university, starting about two years ago, started teaching a class one quarter that really just is about taking, uh, producing holistic uh, storyboards, digital storyboards. And one of the things that we want to do, and we think it's really important, is that we don't, we shouldn't be telling the story. We should be having it where the communities tell a story. So one of the things that we're wanting to do is to have it where we're able to provide the tools, be able to maybe produce workshops, but in whatever ways we do it, is that we're able to introduce people to the ideas of doing this. But however, where they tell their own stories, because if you tell somebody's stories, you're an outsider. You don't really have the voice to tell their story. And so they need to be the ones doing that. And we think that's where it got by going to K through 12. And in fact, one of the classes I have is taught by UW in the high school program. And so the high school teachers that are teaching these things. And so we're in fact working on getting it where this becomes part of sort of the curricula. We should, and in fact, John McCoy, who's just retiring, but he's a Tulalip tribal member and he was a uh, senator from the 38th district in Washington state. And what he has is you got to go like to sixth grade. He's in fifth grade. And so we've got to have it where they're in fact learning about this and uh, they just aren't doing that right now. But the game, because it's such a popular mode of really delivering knowledge is a great way to do that because you can in fact put in all of the parts, all the, all the players that need to be in the stories. And then even if it's a board game, so somebody's playing that, you know, like Monopoly, which apparently have really increased in uh, interest because of the COVID. But if you have it where they're playing these things, they can then stop figuring it out. And then they're sort of like, ooh, I didn't mess up. And the way we want to structure these games is that it's really the community. If the community works together, they win. So it's not that somebody optimizes, you know, something economic or whatever else. It shouldn't be either side. It shouldn't just be the environmental side or the other side. And so we're hoping to use the games uh, to develop this. And uh, a couple of us are, in fact, interacting with a high school student right now, and that's what he's doing. He's, in fact, developing a game. He's figuring out how to tell a story. And part of what we're doing right now is just looking at the removal of the lower Elwa Dam. It was removed, but it's just sort of going actively back into it and saying, well, what are the choices? Who, who really, who do you listen to? And getting it where people recognize that there's more to it. Just like what Mike said, is that when he's talking to people on the east side, they might be farmers. They don't really know where the water comes from. They don't know the impacts of that uh, on the communities that are there. And they're learning how to deal with it. But we need a different way. We can't have it where somebody just sits in a classroom and hears somebody jabbering along because we know that people don't learn that way. And when I was at Yale, it was really interesting. They were teaching in the medical school. They were finding out that uh, future doctors were making a lot of bad diagnoses. Uh, and what they found out at that time is that our attention span is seven minutes. Seven minutes, you know, it's sort of like, what, what are you learning? But if you, in fact, tell something in a story, so they, in fact, went to the British Museum and they were having them look at paintings and try to say, 
what do you see? So they were trying to slow them down and it really worked. But the idea is, is that you need to, in fact, get it where they're finding out. And a lot of the media, that's what they're doing is they're telling stories. Look at TV and look at all the ads you have. They're telling you stories. You know, they may be trying to tell you, take this medicine or whatever else, but they're embedding it in a story. And they're finding out that people remember things when there's a story. And Mike's had it, and I had it sort of in my culture, but in a very different context in Finland. But Mike's had it here where he was learning. What were you, what, five, six years old, Mike, when all of a sudden some of the elders decided that Mike was going to be a leader? And so they took him aside and they started, in fact, telling him stories and talking about the environment and the lands and the nature. And that's what we need. We need to get people. Somebody wrote a book that storytelling humanizes us. And that's what it does. And in fact, the tribal stories, they all have a moral in them. But it's not like you're just telling this flat story. It's something where maybe you can't even tell. I like the one story that Mike has that he's presented in my class is about the, uh, when the monsters sort of rule the world. And, and it's sort of saying it's not like you're going to get a linear story where you go from one thing to the next thing and then you got your story. And every kid, you know, different age, they're going to get different things out, just like what Mike just said. And that's what we need to do. We need to fundamentally change the fact that we're really doing holistic teaching of what's happening in the environment, that environment is too complex. If you're just doing technology, you're building a car, you know, very, you can use robots and you can just sort of do that, but you can't do that for the environment because there are things impacting and affecting it. I don't know if there's going to be an answer right away and maybe there never will be, but my people have been here for a long time and every year they keep pushing back the dates. Uh, when I was a kid, they'd said, oh, you've been here a thousand years, 5,000 years. Uh, maybe it came in after the Ice Age, and now they're finding pre-Ice Age sites. And so dates going back all the time, 10, 20, 30,000 years. There's, there's a couple of sites are saying 60,000 years, and who knows. But, uh, but during that time, you know, the, the climate has changed. You know, during the Ice Age, uh, 13,000 years ago or whenever it was, you know, there's, there's ice two miles thick on North America. And so whatever we were doing back then, you know, it's not going to work this year in 2020. You know, California's burning up. We have a global warming, whoever caused it, or maybe it's just natural. I don't know. But climate's changed. And so whatever answers we had 13,000 years ago, they're not going to work today. We have to adapt and change. And, and so it's not so much that there's a sacred, uh, you know, sacred Indian cookbook and how to do everything. It's, it's more of a process, you know, it's more of a process. And, and based on values, based on how you want to do things. And, the, and so that's kind of what, what needs to happen. And, and, and what works for my little village here in the Indian Reservation on top of my mountain, you know, it's not going to work in downtown Seattle or, or Chicago or New York or somewhere. Every place kind of has to be diverse and try to figure out a process that works for them. I think there are some general things that are good. You know, one that, uh, you know, we can only, we can only, crap in our community is so long and you know are we going to live here forever or just move away when that happens and the pattern for europeans is when they came to north america kind of mined all the gold here and then they headed to the next country and killed everyone there and took all the gold there and it's kind of a resource exploitation model and then maybe if you study business at all it's kind of based on the premises you know making money is good right uh, the faster you make money, the better, right? And so, so the better your return on investment is, that's all good. If you want to get a corporate bonus, you want to 
jack these numbers up and perform, right? And those are all good things. But if you step back a step and you find out, well, what are these profits based on? You know, they they externalized all the negative environmental consequences and uh, they can go tear down the mountain and pull out all the gold or molybdenum or whatever they're mining. And they skip town and go to the next mine. Well, that community there is left with a big pile of poison, right? And, the, and so a lot of those costs are not true costs. And that's where the system is. But, uh, but if you think about it from the standpoint of, well, we're a community, we're going to be here forever. We can't spoil the Calvary Reservation and, and move to another reservation. You know, we're going to be here for thousands of years. And so that kind of changes your perspective. Um, I know not all the world is going to share that view, but it's kind of, as the world gets more interconnected, I think more and more people are starting to see, well, we are interconnected. Uh, you could be eating uh, whale meat in Japan. It's affecting whales in Alaska or sushi or whatever you eat. I don't want to become Japanese, but every country's got something going on, you know. And, and so I just think there's those tools are good. And I also think diversity is good, too. And so not all Indians are the same either. And, and I think just in general biology, you know, uh, diversity is a good thing. So when you do get climate change, some species will survive well. Well, you know, we're not exactly like that. But uh, if you've got 10,000 Native American villages, whatever happens, probably some villages will be doing better than others. And uh, we can just adapt whatever they're doing at work. So that diversity is good, and you could extend that to non-native communities also. Uh, I think I think as cities develop and develop differently, we can borrow from each other. And, and technology makes that easier now, I think. And so you know, we could invent something in Seattle. Next day, it could be in Dubai or somewhere, you know. And, and the, I think the technology allows that to happen today. It's interesting, I think. And, and, I, and to me, the interesting part is a lot of it kind of maybe goes back to what, what we think, you know, we, one of our traditions is that everything has a spirit, everything has a value. People certainly do, the, since the baby is born, you know, he's got a value, he's a human being, he's got a soul, he's, he's a gift, right? Well, we look at everything that way, a tree, an animal, uh, you see a majestic moose walking by, it's not hard to, hard to believe that. Look at a tree, maybe it's a little bit more of a stretch for a lot of people's minds, but but trees are the same thing. They have a soul. They have a, they have a life, and um, and we respect them. We have people that even sing to them, sing to plants. Uh, if you step on a plant, ruin it. Some of our elders will sing a song and ask for forgiveness. They'll leave a token there. That sort of thing. So there's respect for all animals, all life. We even take it farther, right? We we even we even think rocks have a soul. The rocks usually don't move real fast, but. Uh, but if you watch that rock for a couple of billion years, it, it might move. <laughs> so that's how we think. We think in longer term, think differently than most humans. I saw a movie. There's an Indian movie. I forget the name of it right now. But but they have this rock that moves around. It's actually a character, and it's just hilarious. But, uh, but, uh, but it's kind of how we think. And, and so we also think as a community. We think as a tribe. You know? The Colville tribe is kind of a modern construct. Actually, Colville is a... Hudson Bay guy, but somehow we ended up with a name through twists of history. But but we do identify ourselves as a tribe. And so as an individual, Mike Marchand can go to Seattle or New York or wherever I want to go. I can come and go. Uh, but the tribe is still here. The tribe is bigger than me. And so right now, half of the Colville tribal members left the reservation. They live all over. You know, some are in the military, some are in business, some are work for government, whatever they're doing, they're somewhere. 
but we still have this concept that uh, this is our traditional land, the Culver Reservation is ours. Also, outside the reservation, we have traditional lands. And so my mother's people actually came from 100 miles south of here. My dad's people came from 100 miles north of here, and they had their territories. So we, so we kind of connect with where our ancestors used to live. And so it's kind of that, that community, that, that, um, that space that's in their mind. And then uh, I could go live in Seattle for 20 years, but, but this concept of reservation is still there. And we still care about it, you know. And so, so I think that's something that uh, the rest of the world can learn and adapt to, you know. I think it's starting to happen more. I see kids in Seattle, you know, they're, they're kind of concerned about Seattle. Or, or maybe they mountain bike up in the Cascade Mountains. They kind of worry about that, too. And so it's, I think that awareness is growing with the new generations and it's kind of hidden the right way, I think. And, and a lot of these technical um, science silos or whatever silo you're talking about, they start to realize, hey, we're right across the street, this guy's doing something that maybe I'm impacting or maybe I can learn from them or get benefit from them. So I think technology kind of makes it easier. Uh, so I'm kind of, I'm kind of happy with the way things are, but uh, you know, it's going to take time. You know, it, it's not going to happen today. I really appreciate the note of optimism, and I think that the book does a really good job of of helping uh, give a sense of how we might accelerate that change. And as as Christina said, by reaching out to you know high school kids, younger kids, cultures at large, and bringing them together. I really admire kids. You know, I was a kid even one time hundred years ago, but uh, but they've got such spirit and you know such conviction. You know, and and like I, I recently I went to a, a demonstration when I was a young boy at. Uh, Plymouth Rock, I think it was 15 or 16. And it was like right when the American movement, Indian movement was starting, and I didn't even know about it. I just kind of accidentally got there. And, and, and all these radical people like Russell Means and Dennis Banks, who became kind of Native American icons to us later. But then they were just young guys. We went there and demonstrated, and a bunch of Native Americans walked down Boylston Street in Boston, just dressed crazy radical Indians on the reservation. This, this, that alone terrified everybody. And I literally saw Bostonians flee for their lives. They thought we were going to kill them, I think. And then I saw these big, tall Irish cops there cocking their guns. They were hoping they'd get to shoot, I think. But then we went to the Mayflower over there. And this pilgrims over there uh, were all dressed up like pilgrims. You know, for, you know it's a tourist trap. But, uh, but we had this big tables there. And and we were actually staying at the Hilton. Some group paid our way to stay at the Hilton, so that was crazy. And then, and so there was like five boys in a room. We were sleeping on the floor. And anyway, we got to the pilgrim dinner, and and one of the guys who I just met the day before, I think he was from Nevada or somewhere. He was Native American. He said, "Hey, Mike," he grabbed a piece of food and threw it right at me, just like in the com comedy show or movie. And I ducked. It hit someone else behind me, and he was just laughing. And then. And then the guy behind me got hit in the face. He didn't like it. So anyway, a big riot grew out of that. And the, the riot grew, up, grew out of that. And, and some of the kids there, they were not so innocent. They were looking for trouble. They were wanting to destroy something. They were hoping to get arrested or even shot. You know, it's kind of, these people are committed people. And uh, anyway, the riot ensued. The poor pilgrim hosts were just terrified. And we were out of control kids destroying everything. And then. Uh, and I was just trying not to get killed, you know. So anyway, this riot rolled down the hill. And it's right next to the Mayflower, too, the replica Mayflower. And this out-of-control riot rolled down the hill. And 
and the, the, they had a little ticket taker booth there and the, and the ticket man saw this wild Indians rolling down the hill in a big mob and he just kind of threw his hands up and says, everyone can get in for free today and he took off running. <laughs> and so all these kids took over the Mayflower and I was sitting in the mass of the Mayflower and then um, none of this was planned by the leaders, I'm pretty sure. And, and so the kids took over the Mayflower and then um, Dennis Banks and Russell Means, the, the very eloquent speakers of that movement, they said, wow, they jumped in front of the Mayflower and started giving great speeches. And the, Well, my point is, I thought that was it. And then just a few years ago, they had a riot, not a riot, but a very peaceful demonstration at Standing Rock uh, in the Dakotas. It was about a pipeline. And here, you know, the clock's gone forward. I'm an old man now, right? Uh, I showed up there before things kind of happened, the day before Labor Day or a week before Labor Day. And I met their elders, and they were telling me these stories about the area. And, you know, we're kind of related to Sioux, but they're different. You know, they got their own culture. They were telling me about what's important to them, and they were pointing out landmarks and sacred sites and telling me some of their history. And then the first day, um, all the tribes started showing up, uh, I think, day before Labor Day. Literally, Indian tribes from all over the nation showed up there. Tribal leaders, chairmen, chiefs, uh, holy men, medicine men. And they were conducting these uh, ceremonies, things like pipe ceremonies and songs and drummers there. It was the most amazing thing I've ever been to. It, it probably was the first the first thing that amazed me since that Pilgrim uh, Mayflower episode in 1970. But uh, but it was the biggest gathering of, of a nation, tribal nations ever, I think. And all the leaders were there. And so all these kids got inspired. And all these sacred prayers were taking place. And all these young kids got all wound up and fired up. They were just like all charged up and breathing fire. And then... The, Next day, a lot of those kids got arrested. They were just, you know, just so full of spirit and gun holdness. They went out there and demonstrated and got arrested. I'm not, I'm not even sure what all of them did, but they got arrested and put in jail. And, and so there was that kind of fervor and spirit amongst young people. And I think that's kind of universal in the world. But uh, I guess my only hope is that they, uh, that they take that excitement and spirit and convert it into something long-term, you know, like, like some of them need to go to college. We need lawyers. We need scientists. We need engineers. We need technical people. And so, kind of take that that youthful spirit and gung holdness and and conversion in the long run. And so, I think some of them are doing that. You know, it's fun marching and carrying flags. We're even getting arrested for some people. But but uh, you need to get into school and kind of hone those skills. Learn how to read and write. Learn laws. And, you know the. These big petroleum companies aren't going to disappear just because you had a protest. You know, there, there's, there's hundreds of billions of dollars at stake. We need some very smart people, not just Native people, but all races. They need to get their skills up to level to, to fix the world. You know, It took a lot of expertise to ruin it. It's going to take a lot of expertise to fix it, too. So that's, that's kind of my message, I guess. That's a powerful message, and, and it, I really appreciate your sharing it with me. And I think... Uh... Um, I hope that readers are able to pick up that passion from the book. I think with that, we're about out of time. Before we go, I, I want to say thank you both so much, Christina Vogt and Mike Marchand, for taking the time to join us today. As I said, I've really enjoyed um, hearing the stories and, and learning about the book and the work that y'all are doing. Uh, and I hope that folks will check out the book. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. 
The Medicine Wheel, Environmental Decision-Making Process of Indigenous Peoples, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can find Dr. Marchand on Facebook, and you can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me, at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trego, Medija Gos, Kyleen Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.